This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Okay, welcome back to the program. You know, um, in advance of the uh, the Hall of Fame's announcement yesterday of the uh, new inductees, uh, to me and a lot of other people, there were two, as we like to call them, no-brainers. Uh, two people that had to go in effective yesterday, and they did. One was Henrik Lundqvist, and the other is my guest. Uh, Carolyn Ouellette uh, is already in the IIHF Hockey Hall of Fame. She has uh, four Olympic gold medals, six world championship gold medals as well, and she is part of the class of 2023. Carolyn, thank you so much, as always, for stopping by. How are you today? I'm very good. Yourself? Uh, I am doing well. Uh, congratulations, felicitations. Um, it looks fantastic, albeit overdue, uh, but nonetheless, uh, you got there. What was the experience like when you got the phone call? Uh, yesterday was actually a really special day. I left early with my family uh, to go to Quebec City because I was also being honored for with the Order of Quebec. Um, so while I was in the, the pre-ceremony, I stepped out for a couple of minutes and I realized that I had missed five calls <laughs> from Toronto. So I called back. I couldn't get a hold of anyone. And then the ceremony started with the, the premier, uh, François Legault. And, you know, we got to meet him, exchange with the other guests. And then the formal part of the ceremony started. So there was 35 of us, incredible um, women and men from Quebec that were recognized. Uh, so inspiring to hear about their story and all their accomplishment and all their their spheres. And then, so it was only after that that uh, one of the media person, uh, a friend of mine, came to me and and she showed me her phone with the announcement. So. I found out then with at the same time as my parents, my family, so it was truly a really spe- special and unforgettable moment. It was also my my parents' 48th wedding anniversary, if you can believe it, so uh, oh, wow. a truly special day. <laughs> <laughs> so your parents' wedding anniversary, you receive the Order of Quebec, and also you go into the Hockey Hall of Fame. Um, listen, if, if I just, you know, make it to my pillow at the end of the day without my kids being angry at me, that's a, that's a successful day. What an absolutely huge day, uh, for you, Caro, it was when, when you, when you finally found out, um, albeit in a very untraditional way, when you finally found out who you're, that you were going into the Hockey Hall of Fame, who was, who was your first phone call or who was your first text? Well, I did call Lanny McDonald right after the ceremony because I wanted to speak with him in person. So that was uh, truly wonderful. And, um, of course, I called Julie, my wife, and, uh, you know, was able to see my kids on FaceTime. They stayed back in Montreal. Um, But just you think back about uh, the whole career you were able to have, my years with the national team, and just hearing from teammates. Uh, many of them from current uh, players that I coach, Marie-Philippe Poulin, Sarah Nurse, uh, um, just players like that, Aaron Ambrose. My, you know, it's it was truly special, but also some, some opponents from Team USA. So uh, just to hear about uh, what it meant for them and, and how they felt playing against me. So it's this is truly something that, you know, it makes you feel so incredible. And I'm very thankful for the incredible teammates and coaches that I had along the years and the, the wonderful teams I've been part of, whether it was with Team Canada or here in Montreal or in, in college at Minnesota Duluth and all of that together contributed to the player that I was able to become. You know, you occupy a really um, a really solid position in hockey and in, in one, well, in a number of ways, but one very specific way um, to me, and that is, you know, whenever I talk to anyone who's played on your team, it's it's adoration and love. Like your teammates, you know this, even to this day, like they adore you. And to your other point, I mean, players that played against you, even though they may not have loved playing against you, Caro, they all respected you. Like there's that healthy mix of adoration and respect. And, and I don't know that that's... I don't know that that's true for, for a lot of other players. Uh, I know it's sometimes hard to talk about yourself, but, you know, why, like, why do you think that is? Like, I, I listen, we all watched you play, and we can understand, like, how much you're loved by your teammates, but it's this healthy mix of, of love and respect from both teammates and 
opponents? Is it a, a because of a certain way you approach the game, a way that you played? How do you explain your success? Well, thank you, Jeff. That's uh, that's really touching. Um, <laughs> I think that I was able to grow throughout my career for from someone that was very very competitive to learning what it actually meant to become a leader and to care about others and to care about the process and, and to really take care of those relationships that in the end, you know, make everyone feel welcome, feel safe, make everyone want to thrive for the success of the team. And I think it's probably a mix of that, no matter the role I was in and what I was asked of, I wanted to be the best that I could be and I wanted to win above all. So I was, very competitive with everything that I took part of, but I also wanted to bring people along. And, you know, I had a great mentor in Francais. We was my childhood uh, idol, but also became my teammate in my first world championship. And, you know, after the first world championship, she sat me down and she told me, Carol, it's one thing to make Team Canada, but if you want to make it for years, you get a bit, get more much more fitter than you are. I think I had made Team Canada on talent and, you know, I had to learn to become an athlete. So conversations like that truly transformed my life and transformed the way I approached my preparation. So I tried to be that person uh, to younger players uh, the years after. And I was lucky also to meet Shannon Miller in, in college and you know, she taught me what it meant to be a captain and, and a leader. And she also gave me my first mm-hmm. opportunity as a coach uh, so I discovered there another passion, mentoring young players that have the same passion and the same dream. And now I'm truly able to experience the same emotions that my players are as a coach. And it's it, it's so fulfilling. fulfilling. I feel like I have, I'm doing the second best thing after playing, which is coaching. <laughs> Giving back, uh, I want to get to um, you know the, the what athletes are like now and and the nature of, of skill that you're seeing on a consistent basis. But um, I, I'm curious about your your career and like there are some players that we watch and at a certain point you say to yourself, you know what, Carol here's getting into Hall of Fame territory with a career because it was like you have a, one of the most successful uh, careers of, of, of any hockey player. You know, we look at Marie-Philippe Poulain. The, the Hall of Fame conversation is already done with her. She's going into the Hockey Hall of Fame one day. Hillary Knight, the Hall of Fame conversation is already done. She's going into the Hockey Hall of Fame one day when she retires. Um, at what point did you yourself start to meet, think like, you know what, maybe I'm entering Hall of Fame territory here now. I mean... We all talked about it. Did you ever allow yourself to think about it? Not really, because it's not really something that you control. And then, you know, I played for a long time on Team Canada, but I saw there. I know there's many, many women that that did just the same, whether it was in Canada, but also in Europe. And many of the, these women were incredible hockey players, incredible builders for the game. So I think I can think of so many that that were, would be deserving of this honor. And, you know, the one thing is, you know, you, you think about the fact that if it is going to happen to you, you hope that, for example, for me, that my parents will still be there to to experience that moment uh, with me because it's, it's a way to maybe show them how grateful I am for everything that they've done all the sacrifices. We weren't mm-hmm. really a wealthy family. Uh, sacrifices of time. They followed me everywhere, and you know to see their pride and their joy. It's, I'm speechless when I see that. So that's that truly means the world. You know, the um, I can recall being a young boy playing in the, uh, here's how old I am, the MTHL. Before it was called the GTHL, it was the MTHL. And I can recall, you know, one year, um, Justine Blaney was, was a huge story. Um, I've gotten to, to speak to her a number of different times subsequent, but I can, re- I can recall, you know, how much of a, you know, how much of a, a controversy this was that she was playing on the, on the boys team and what this was going to mean for hockey and blah, 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 blah. It turned into a, a huge ordeal. And when you look at women's hockey, she was a pivotal, uh, a pivotal piece in, in what became uh, women's hockey later and fighting for the rights, um, to, to play on the team that you can make. Um, and I look at hockey now, even at that same level, with my kids. And my 11-year-old plays on a AAA team um, with a girl on the squad as well. And it's, 
there's no controversy. There's no nothing. She's just, you know, shout out Jesse Olden, who, who plays on that team. Um, and I can't help, you know, thinking to myself, you know, when I was 11 years old, same as my youngest son, this was a huge controversy. When you see where the women's game has come uh, from when you began or from when, you know, people old, as old as me began to where it is now, what goes through your mind? Uh, just a lot of pride because, as you mentioned, you know, I, I first of all, I started at nine, which is pretty late compared to most of my teammates. And it's, it took me mm-hmm. two years to convince my parents to let me play. Um, and then I played with the boys from nine to 17. It was the only girl on my team all those years. And I think that right there and everything that I've heard along the years, uh, you know, being bullied for it, basically, because girls did not play hockey. Um, I think it, it that's what built the drive in me to want to do more to get girls in hockey. And that's why I created the nonprofit Girls Hockey Celebration in, in 2014. And uh, to get more girls in the game, to show them all the opportunities that the opportunities that they now have. And I know still today that some girls are facing resistance uh, or are hearing, you know, mean things. And I want them to know that it's okay as long as they, they found that passion, they followed their dreams, they believe in, in what, you know, in, in all that they can achieve. And I think you can achieve that by getting them to meet, you know, national team players, pro players, players that have been successful both in hockey and in academics and you know, I think we can do so much as Olympians to, to grow our sport, and it's a bit of a responsibility. So for me now to see how much the girls' game has evolved is incredible. It's And it's I think it's only the beginning now. The caliber is absolutely fantastic. I really believe that we are at the point yep. where a, a professional hockey league, including the best players uh, in the world, will be fantastic hockey that, there will be a fan base that, that will follow it, that will encourage it, and that it will continue to grow. And that's, I think, my last dream is I, I want girls and, and, and women to be able to play hockey professionally and doing well and, and not have to work full-time at the same time as, as I had to do. So um, we're, we're going to yeah. get there soon, and I can't wait to, to be able to watch it. It's- yeah, listen, you know a lot better than I do, but it is so close right now. Like every day that I wake up, I wonder, is this the day we get the announcement? Is this the day uh, that we get the announcement? Um, what, one final question for you here. Um, we've seen uh, NHL players um, during their, you know, the, their, their Hall of Fame years, um, whether it's as part of their speeches or part of interviews, make the case for other players. And I can recall Mark Messier, you know, when he was inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame, talking about Glenn Anderson and how he hoped that the uh, the Hall of Fame selection committee would one day, you know, um, have a have a stronger look at Glenn Anderson's career and 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 get him into the Hockey Hall of Fame. Uh, I'm going to give you the floor. Um, who else do you think, from the women's side, who else do you think belongs in? Like, if you could, if you could nominate, you know, I don't know how many, however many people you want to mention, who else belongs in the Hockey Hall of Fame from the women's side? according to you oh my goodness that's that's a tough one i hadn't thought about that but there's so many women that come to mind whether it's the great cassie campbell who had such an impact on so many players and could be as a player or a builder for everything she's done to the game um saint louis was part of team canada from 1990 to 99 captain incredible leader incredible person again did so much off the ice to grow the game. Uh, when I think about uh, players from Europe that I played against, Maria Root and Erica Olst were part of Team Sweden for three, four Olympics, really, really successful, some of the best players at the time. Um, and then Julie Chu, my, my wife, uh, just the impact that mm-hmm. she's had uh, on our team in college. Uh, Jennifer Botterill was my center for so many years and an incredible, incredible human being. She made me feel confident and ready. And um, she elevated me every game that I got to play with. And, and I played with her for most of my career. So there are so many, and I'm sure I'm forgetting a ton that I'm going to be mad at myself <laughs> after. But uh, <laughs> um, I think our sport is still relatively young. And you mentioned them, but there's so many players now that uh, are exceptional to name only a few Marie-Philippe Poulain, yeah. Hilary Knight they're, they're for sure but there's 
you know, Brianna Decker, who just retired, who was one of the best, in, in my opinion, and, and there are many more, the Lamour twins. Um, those were exceptional players. And so I think that um, the, the, it's going to happen where there's going to be too many incredible women uh, for, for the spots that are available. And I think that's a good sign for, for the growth of the game. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Um, listen, again, congratulations, uh, you know, on, on behalf of everyone involved in this property here. We're just thrilled and very happy for you and Julie uh, and your family that you're going into the Hockey Hall of Fame. Felicitations uh, encore. Congratulations again. Thank you so much for doing this as always. Thank you, Jeff. Always a pleasure to speak with you. And pleasure is all mine. Uh, there she is, Hockey Hall of Famer, uh, Carolyn Ouellette, who adds... Listen to the uh, to the list of accolades, which includes four Olympic gold medals, um, world championship medals, six six gold and six silver. She's already in the IIHF uh, Hockey Hall of Fame. Like a number of others, Clarkson Cup, like a, a number of other championships all along the way. One of the most decorated um, hockey players uh, the game has ever seen. Really happy to see Carolyn Roulette uh, going into the Hockey Hall of Fame. Would have been nice though. Would have been really nice to see um, Julie Chu go in. There was one spot available as well. They're allowed to nominate two women every year. Would have been really nice to see uh, Carolyn Willette uh, and her wife Julie Chu go in at the exact same time. Chu deserves it, and she's going to get in one day. Would have been nice if it happened now. Um, okay, I think... All right, here's something for you. I believe, source is saying... Just getting a note here. Uh, World Juniors. The announcement comes up in about 10 minutes here. This is for the 24-25 World Junior Championships when it comes back to Canada. Look for Ottawa to get it. All right, we got 10 minutes to find out if I'm uh, on the mark or off. Sounds like it's going to be Ottawa, folks, for the World Juniors. Uh, not next season. It's in Sweden the season after. Tick, tick, Merrick. Better be right. Jimmy Murphy from uh, Boston Hockey now drops by in a couple of moments, and we'll hear from Chuck Fletcher as part of a 32 Thoughts interview we did a couple of days ago. Hour two, coming up. Dive deep into Toronto sports and the NFL. The J.D. Bunkus podcast. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. All right, welcome back to the program. Welcome to Hour 2. Coming up uh, in about 15 minutes' time, we'll hear from Chuck Fletcher, former general manager of the uh, Philadelphia Flyers, uh, Minnesota Wild as well. This is part of an interview on the 32 Thoughts podcast that Elliot and I did earlier on this week. Um, Chuck will be with us as part of our draft coverage in Nashville next week, so very much look forward to that. And we've got about 13 or 14 minutes of Fletcher here talking about uh, draft day trade proposals, uh, etc. It's some some really intriguing stuff. So you might want to stay tuned for this one coming up in about 15 minutes. Uh, in the meantime, as we uh, sort of tour through the NHL and you know stop at a number of different teams that have certain amounts of intrigue attached to them, you know one of the most interesting you know, remain the Boston Bruins, no doubt. Listen, no doubt they had an incredible record-breaking regular season. And then we all know what happened against the Florida Panthers. Um, here for comment on what's next for the Boston Bruins from Boston Hockey Now, our good friend Jimmy Murphy. Murph, how are you today, pal? I'm great, Jeff. And you? Uh, I'm good, man. So uh, a couple of things here. So most recently we've wondered about, as have you, I've seen, uh, about the future mm-hmm. of David Krejci. And uh, you've written about and you've talked about him. I think we wonder about Patrice Bergeron as well. But let's let's start with, with David Krejci. What's, the, or what's a reasonable expectation here for him, coming back or no? Uh, you know what? Right now it's, uh, it, it seems like all signs are pointing towards him retiring. So I don't – I'd have to say at this point I don't think he'll be back. And, of course – Things can change, but talking to one person who knows him very well, um, and then another NHL source that's uh, you know been involved with talks before with him, he was leaning towards retirement, and he kind of hinted that to us uh, at the end of the season when he had his final media availability. You know, he flat out said, "This very well yeah. could have been my last game," and he he didn't say that you know the last time he went through this. Uh, when, you know, when he got out of check, or whether it was a year before he went to check. 
he still was very confident that he would return to the NHL and that he would play again in the NHL. I don't see that now, and I, I think that this this is most likely going to be it for him. Uh, and if it is, look, uh, mm-hmm. it's been a pleasure covering him. I've, I've covered him since he came into the NHL. I think he's one of the most underrated players, at least in my years, covering the Boston Bruins. Uh, yep. and, and just overall, I think he's one of the most underrated players they've had. He's been dependable. And really, you know, you look at how strong that one-two punch of him and Bergeron has been so consistently over the years. Uh, they're going to miss that. Uh, you can never have enough right shot centers, just like you can never have enough right shot defensemen. You can also never have enough right shot uh, centers, and the the Bruins have been blessed with that for a number of years. I want to get the Bergeron here in a, a couple of seconds, but you know uh, your latest piece at Boston Hockey Now is talking about the David Krejci situation, um, and although you're right about you know no firm you know deadlines for a decision, etc., I've got to think that the Boston Bruins, they they I mean don't they need to know soon? I mean, there's like yes. some significant budgeting things that, that need to happen, whether it's, um, you know, bringing in free agents on July 1st, whether it's, you know, hey, let's see if we can do a deal for Shifley or we'll see what's happening with Lindholm in Calgary. Um, uh, to say nothing of the Patrice Bergeron situation, to say nothing of trying to re-sign Tyler Bertuzzi and, and Hathaway, et cetera. Like, uh, they need to know soon, don't they, Jimmy? Yeah, they, they do. And I, look, I, I would imagine knowing... You know, knowing the class acts that both Bergeron and Krejci are the team guys they've always been, that they're, you know, if Sweeney had gone to, I'm, I'm sure he did when the season ended, said, look, guys, I, I'm probably going to need to know something, you know, by draft week. Um, I'm sure they understand that. They get it. They know how, how this works. And, look, I, I, I think, too, you look at a guy like Bergeron, who not only is just a, a great player off the ice, I, I think he understands also the way the business works and might be something maybe he wants to get into in the future. Who knows? But I think he gets all that. He knows the mm. predicament and the and the pickle that Don Sweeney is in. So I, I definitely think there's been some kind of unofficial deadline. They're not going to tell us publicly. And look, if they came to him and they said, Don, I need a little more time. You know and I'm talking? This could be something going on as we speak right now, Jeff, or in the next few days. And they say, look, I'm, I'm just need a couple more days. I just got to run this through my family a bit more and, and really make sure I'm doing the right thing here. I'm sure Sweeney's going to be fine with that. But, yeah, they need something concrete by the time Don Sweeney gets down into Nashville uh, and really, you know, maybe steps up to the podium to receive the Jim Gregory Award if he wins it or he's there as a finalist. He needs to know these things going into the draft because he is going to be one of, if not the busiest GMs, I think, next week at the draft and leading into free agency. Uh, absolutely. Well, one final closing thought here on, on David Krejci. Um, he's always, I'm with you, Murph, like he's always been one of my favorite players. Uh, and one of the reasons why I like Krejci so much in this era of speed, 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 uh, that's never been Krejci's game. He's always seemed at least a half step slower than anyone, but he's always also yep. seemed a half step smarter than everybody as far as being like wildly creative and really smart uh with the puck body positioning all of it there are a few finer at that position given all of his limitations too like let's not forget like this like i mentioned this guy's not this guy's not Connor mcdavid this guy's not winning any foot races here but he's just shows you that as much as the premium is still on foot speed in a lot of ways you can play for a long time really effectively look we see this in vegas with mark stone even without being a burner, as long as you understand the game. And there are a few that understand it as well as David Krejci. I think you're dead on there. You know, and look, I, by no means am I putting on the same level as Larionov, but you know how they used to call Igor Larionov the professor. I always kind of saw that. Of course. Sort of that mentality, that persona with David Krejci as well. Like you said, he thought the game and that totally compensated for any physical deficiencies he may have had. And, and, and speaking of physical deficiencies, uh, Jeff, like let's not forget how much back pain this guy went through. He battled back issues, it seems like, oh, yeah. the better part of the second half of his, his career, and he still toughed it out. And I always go back to, if people want to really know how valuable David Krejci was to the Bruins, you just watch him in the playoffs. And you go back to 2010 when they blew that 3-0 yeah. series lead to the Philadelphia Flyers. Remember, he went down in game four, uh, and that was the first win that the Flyers got in the series. The Flyers didn't lose again 
because David Krejci wasn't in the lineup. If he's in that lineup, I'm convinced the Bruins yeah. beat the Flyers in that playoff series. And then he came back the next year, and he was their leading scorer en route to the Stanley Cup. So uh, it just shows you how valuable he's been. He was great in 2013 as well. And, Jeff, I'm looking back when I'm writing that today, this morning, and I'm even just looking at this specific playoff series against Florida. I, You know, he only played four games, but every game he played in, he was on the on the stat sheet, mm-hmm. you know, and he was valuable, and he was a guy who really got him going. And if they didn't blow that lead at the end of Game Seven, he probably would have been the hero because he he put them on his back in that game. So, look, this guy's going to go down as one of the better Bruins, at least of my time, and I hope he gets his due someday mm-hmm. uh, with the organization. I'm sure he will. Um, okay, Patrice Bergeron as well. We wondered last season, and he came back. Now th- this year. Listen, I'm of the uh, I'm of the strong belief that one of the teams that was considered for um, the exhibition games in Australia were the Boston Bruins. I know there'd be some travel issues, but I, I think that that name was was discussed. Um, but one of the questions was, would Patrice Bergeron be playing um, or not? Um, so, what do you think? Which way is Bergeron leaning here? Uh, are the Boston Bruins operating under the assumption that last year was it that was going to be the the finality? They did the uh, the, uh, the, uh, the 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 contract with the bonuses to kick into next season. I can take one more good run at this thing for Patrice Bergeron. Well, how are the Boston Bruins operating right now around the future Hall of Famer? I, you know, I think this one's more of a crapshoot. Still, I I, I think it's. I don't know, 50-50 eh? is a little too strong. Yeah, I do. I, I think that there's still a chance there. and You know, Bergeron, we know how passionate he is. We know what a competitor he is. And this is not to say David Krejci wasn't. Oh, yeah. But I'm just I, – I think Bergeron's on another level. And I, I just can't – I don't know. I can't see – unless he's just completely physically unable to go – uh, concerning what he went through with with his back and that herniated disc and all the other injuries yeah. battling, look, I, I think I think there's still a chance with him. I just can't see him letting that be the way he goes out, the way they went out against the Florida Panthers. I think he looks at it. This team still has a chance. I know Sweeney's got to pull some cap magic there, but I think if if he looks at that roster, he says, "Look, this team could still win." and Obviously, a lot of things are going to happen, like we said, in the next two weeks that could change that roster quite a bit. But even still, they have Charlie McAvoy coming back, Hampus Lindholm, David Posnack. Uh, you know, this this mm-hmm. is a team that still has some foundation. And I think Bergeron, Brad Marchand, that's an interesting thing, though. And we'll get to that. I, I, you know, if, he, if Bergeron doesn't come back, that's something I'd watch. I, does that change the status of Brad Marchand? Because then, then the Bruins really turn a page, and, and maybe, you know, really change the makeup of the team. And it's funny, Jeff. I I woke up today to the news of that Celtics trade. I'm not sure how much of a basketball guy you are. But yeah, quite yeah. a big, yeah, yeah, quite a big trade here. I mean, that's the talk of the town right now, and people are kind of stunned yeah. that they would trade a guy like Marcus Smart, who's the heart and soul. And I, I immediately thought, if Bergeron and Krejci retire. Why wouldn't Don Sweeney do something like this with Brad Marchand? He, he's been saying, you know, look, we need to eventually move on. We need to turn the page. We need to go into a new generation of Bruins here. It might be the perfect opportunity, but I don't think we're there yet. Mm. Well, we do know that the one thing this team is going to need is cap space. And that is going to be, especially if they want to redo Tyler Bertuzzi, who, by the way, like mm-hmm. just looked like he looked and played like a Bruin. Like I know it's the old yeah. stereotype, but it's true. Like he looked and like I grew up like I'm a kid of the 70s, 80s, and I have this one very specific way about you know what a Boston Bruin looks like. <laughs> Me uh, too. Plays like, and I saw Tyler Bertuzzi in that you know that black and gold, and I'm like, yeah, man, that guy looks like a Boston Bruin. Um, if they want to do these types of deals, someone's got to go, or some people have to go um which position do you think we should be looking at as far as ways to make cap space well i i I think you just start from the goal out in that order um i I think you look at goaltending right now which you know whether they were to move allmark or swayman they're not killing themselves between the pipes I, i think they're 
if if one goes, they're still very solid because they're both that good. Um, they know that they've had a, a complete luxury of having those guys over the past season. You know, they won the Jennings Trophy together. They know it's a great partnership there, and they benefited off each other, and the team benefited off that partnership as well. But at the same time, now might be the time to use one of those guys to get that cap relief, and then you just go right out onto the blue line. And I look at guys like Matt Grizzlick or Derek Forbert, maybe buying out a Mike Riley. Mm. Um, he's got some options there, and I can tell you right now that there is interest in Matt Grizzlick. And I know at one point sure. last year, yeah, at one point last year, I know the Oilers were looking at him, so I don't know if maybe that gets revisited. I'm not sure, but there's interest out there. He's a He's a good commodity, and he's not the worst cap hit, but he's enough of a cap hit that the Bruins would get some relief there. But I think the biggest position right now to look at with the Bruins is the goaltending. Hmm. So we could see a situation where Linus Allmark wins the Vesna and then gets traded. <laughs> you could, I mean, that would be something. And I think you just have to say, if you're Don Sweeney, look, is this guy's value ever going to be higher? Um, right now, if he goes and gets that Vesna trophy, he's looking pretty shiny there on the NHL trade market. So you got to see what you can get. I'm not saying they should do it, but you have to at least explore it. I mean, in the position you're in right now, you have to explore every avenue of cap relief you can get. I think Taylor Hall at the forward position is another one. I thought he was great. I thought he was maybe top three player in the playoffs last year. So his value is up right now. And he's still got a year left after this. So I think all options are open with the Boston Bruins, uh, with maybe the exception of a David Pasenak and a Charlie McAvoy and a Hampus Lindholm. Let, let me circle back to Taylor Hall there, because I find I, I, I find Taylor Hall fascinating. Um, I, I wonder if on this Bruins team, further to your point, like Hall played great. Hall, Hall was oh. awesome. I just look at he this team. He was a machine in the playoffs. Specifically... He, he totally was. He was fantastic. I just wonder if he's become, you know, like some teams have like so much depth and so many good players. You look at some guys and you say, man, it's great to have him, but he's a luxury item. Mm-hmm. Like does Taylor Hall on this team feel like a luxury item to you? Yes. Yes, he does. And considering that I, I, I think that the Bruins have some good wings coming in their system, um, considering that if, you know, we started this conversation off by talking about the very real possibility that they're losing their two top centers in Bergeron and Krejci, and now that means what? Pavel Zaka is your number one center? Look, with all due respect to Pavel Zaka, who I thought had a, a great year and I think is a very serviceable middle six center, they're going to need yeah. to start to push towards the future there at the center position. That is where they need to start to build the depth and, and even maybe go out and somehow find, you know, a diamond in a rough if he could to come in and, and play and alternate on those one, two spots there up the middle. So, you know, when you've got a wing like a Taylor Hall that you can afford to move to the cap luxury and the cap space to go out and maybe get the center you need, you, you got to look at it and you yeah. maybe have to do it. You know what? To to that point, I I think of a um, I'll share with you a funny story. So I uh, I got to become good friends with Bobby Holik, and after his career wrapped up, we were it's, it's a long story. So we were, we were driving to go see the Oshawa Generals play, and uh-huh. uh, on the way there, you know, we're talking about his career and everything, and you know the big ticket that he got from the Rangers, etc. And I said, how come it worked out so great for you? in New Jersey and it was quite the opposite with the New York Rangers. And he said, and cause Bobby's great. Cause Holik is honest to a fault. Like you ask yeah. him a question, he will That's give you a 100% honest and it's a hundred percent true. He said, Jeff, yeah. it's simple. If Bobby Holik is your third line center, we're going to win the Stanley cup. But if Bobby Holik is your first line center, <laughs> we're not going to win the Stanley cup. The problem was so, in New York Rangers, I was the first line center, <laughs> and so that's what I'm thinking when you're when you're talking uh, when you're talking about Pavel Zaka. Listen, if you have the luxury of having Pavel Zaka down your lineup, maybe he's in your third uh, your uh, your third line. You got a chance you're going to win the Stanley Cup. But if Pavel Zaka yeah. is on your first line, you're probably not going to win the Stanley Cup. And, and I that's just hey, first look at, thought, look at Charlie Coyle. Conversation. 
Yeah, and I think I think Charlie Char- Coyle's that's another great example. Same thing, right? I mean, look at when he was expected to do so much more in Minnesota, and then he came to Boston. He was able to fall into that three C slot, and he's been unreal. 100%. He was another guy that I thought was huge in that series too, um, and he stepped up in relief of Bergeron and Krejci when they were hurt. Um, but you can't expect him now to go back to being a number one center or number two. He is your third line center. So let him sit there, go out and find the guys to put in front of him. Nothing wrong with being a third line center. Hey, listen, uh, Murph on that. We got to go. Excellent work as always. Encourage everyone to go read your latest piece on David Krejci and the future there. Uh, And we'll stay in touch. And uh, are we going to see the draft you in Nashville? I'm, I'm hoping so. It's still up in the air, but I will talk to you tomorrow on my podcast. So looking forward to that. That's 2.15 2.15 Eastern, baby. Or no, 2 o'clock, 2 to, 2 to 2.15 tomorrow. We'll uh, look forward to that uh, recording. And if I don't see you in Nashville, uh, thanks as always for stopping by. Your class act, great guy, Bon Vivant, man about town. Hope to see you in Tennessee. But if I don't, have a great summer. Thanks for always coming on. You my too, friend. my man. Cheers. Bye. Jimmy Murphy uh, from Boston Hockey Now. Uh, wonderful dude. Uh, got all the time for Murph. Um, so the Boston Bruins have some uh, decisions to make on the horizon here. Interesting, the conversation around Linus Allmark. Interesting that Murph puts it at 50-50 about Patrice Bergeron. I might lean more towards not coming back and them exploring the markets. And I, I, again, it was interest so many years ago. But honestly, like close your eyes for one second. Unless you're driving right now. Do not close your eyes if you're listening right now and you're driving. But if you're not... Just close your eyes for one second and think about Lindholm in Calgary. And if he decides that he's not going to re-sign with the Calgary Flames, the nature of how Lindholm plays, strong two-way guy, that's always been the hallmark of the first-line center spot with the Boston Bruins. Tell me you can't see Lindholm sliding into a black and gold jersey and playing for the Boston Bruins. You know you can, right? You're nodding right now. A little bit of bobblehead routine. You can see it. I know Flames fans don't want to hear this right now. Sorry, Calgary. But you can see it, right? We all can. We'll see what that, uh, where that ends up. Um, in the meantime, that little thought experiment uh, is over. Uh, let's get to our interview here. And a couple of days ago, Elliot and I sat down with Chuck Fletcher. Now, Chuck Fletcher is the former general manager of the Philadelphia Flyers, uh, also the former general manager of the Minnesota Wild. Um, I mean, the name is Hockey Royalty, uh, going right back to his, uh, his father, Cliff, um, who is, you know, one of, the, uh, one of the legends in hockey as far as managers go. Um, both putting teams together and managing relationships I don't know that I saw anyone better at it than Cliff Fletcher, Chuck's dad. He was the finest um, class individual as well. And I have a lot of time for the Fletcher family, and I've always had a lot of time for Chuck. Um, And I don't think that there was any expectation that Fletcher in this interview was going to fire anyone under the bus from Philadelphia. He's still getting paid by the Philadelphia Flyers. Uh, and I don't think he wants to uh, to breach that contract. Um, but in the interview that we did, and you can hear the whole thing on the 32 Thoughts podcast, I thought, and I shouldn't be surprised by, the fact that you know Chuck Fletcher gave people, some key people, a lot more of a softer landing than they probably deserve. But that's Chuck Fletcher. Anyhow, Chuck Fletcher is with us next week as part of our draft coverage in Nashville. Very much look forward to that. And so we talk a lot about the draft here with Chuck Fletcher on 32 Thoughts, the podcast. As you can hear the whole thing on the most recent edition, here's about 10 or 12 minutes of our conversation with Chuck Fletcher, former general manager of the Philadelphia Flyers. Tell me about some of the biggest fights you ever heard in draft meetings or at the draft table. Oh, gosh, we've... We had some beauties in Anaheim. Um, you know, our assistant GM and the gentleman that ran the draft for us was Tim Murray. And Tim, mm-hmm. uh, very close friend and one of the smartest hockey people I know and should be in the game, by the way. He's, he's, a, he's a brilliant guy, but... Media misses Tim Murray. <laughs> Tim didn't have a lot of patience uh, for certain situations. So we're, we're going through uh, our end-of-the-year scouting meeting, and it was Sidney Crosby's year, so this is the... Uh, what would that have been, the 
five, five. 2000, 2005 yeah. drive. Five. Yep. And, and so we're going through the name and there were a lot of defensemen that year and we were having a really hard time sorting through them. And uh, so we were, we're just going in circles for hours and some crazy comments were being made. And, and so finally Tim stands up and says, okay, I'm going to put all the defensemen at the top of the list. We'll put Sidney Crosby at number seven and uh, you guys can't figure it out. This is what, I, I mean, people were screaming at each other. And one guy broke his computer. He slammed the top so hard. <laughs> and uh, we had to take a break for about an hour and a half and come back and, and I remember during that break, I turned to Tim. I, everybody had left the room. It was just Tim and I in the room. I said, you did a fine job there. I said, you just cleared out the whole room. <laughs> but when we came, we came back, everybody, uh, we got the list together and, and figured it all out. But it's really emotional. And, and what you find is a lot of scouts have an area that they cover in particular. There, you know, Some guys cross over, some guys don't. But typically, you might have a guy out west, a guy in Ontario, a guy in Quebec, uh, you know, another person in the U.S. or a couple people in the U.S. And what tends to happen at times is people get a little parochial. They, they, they battle for players in their area, which is why it's important to, have, to allow a lot of crossover. But I find uh, every year there gets to be choke points in the list where people are fighting for their own players. And, and that's where somebody has to sort it out and, and put the list in the right order. But, you know, it, it, it's, it's understandably emotional. Guys work hard and, and they have have opinions and they believe in their ability to assess talent. You know, they want their player uh, higher than the other guy's player, but it's just the way it goes. So there's always been the, um, the debate, Chuck, as you well know, and this is specific to the first round as well. Uh, do you just take the best player available or do you draft for positional need? And I'll frame it this way. Chris Pronger's told people the story of his draft year, the Alexander Dig draft, and he goes second overall. San Jose originally had that second overall pick and Pronger was talking to San Jose and San Jose was of the mind that we're not going to take you because we already have Mike Rathje and Marcus Ragnarsson. And so we already have enough big defensemen end up trading the pick anyhow and Hartford ended up getting it and Pronger ended up going second overall but San Jose wasn't going to look at Chris Pronger because they already had Chris Pronger types and then I can recall the um the year that Colorado took Connor Bleakley the forward from the Western Hockey League Patrick Waugh fought against it he wanted the defenseman and he felt that Colorado needed defensemen and that in his mind hockey was at a point right now where kids are so close to joining the NHL and making an impact as first rounders you could draft for position do you still subscribe to the best player available or are we at a place in hockey where kids are close to making an impact you can go for positional need. You absolutely can go for position, provided you're not going by a better player. That's where you got to be really careful. Uh, if there's a market difference or a, a real difference in the future prospects, uh, you know, of those players you're looking at, you got to go with the better player because things change. Uh, you know, Connor Bedard this year, uh, maybe Fantilli. You might have a couple kids that are drafted and step right into the NHL. But for most of these players, it's two, three, four years down the road. Mm-hmm. Things change. Injuries happen to your club. The perceived need you have now may be different. But a lot of that gets flushed out through the meetings. When you're having meetings, those are the debates that happen. You're you're getting on the list this year. Maybe it's people debating between Ryan Backer and Will Smith and Leonard. They're all maybe all similarly rated. Do you want the big right shot defenseman? Do you want the playmaking center? Do you want the, you know, the gritty uh, winger with skill? And sometimes that you can, you know, your needs can come into place a little bit more there if, if you feel they're similar on your list, you know, based on your, on your team. But, uh, but again, I think it gets dangerous when you do that when you start going by better players to fill needs in the first round. Mm-hmm. I, I get it later on. Once you get to the second, third, fourth round, drafting by position, there's there's probably not a huge difference that you can perceive at that point in, in future prospects. So go with what you feel you need. But, you know, first round, top 10 or top 15, you shouldn't be going by a better player uh, or, or you're going to get burned. Okay. You're probably the greatest pick of your career was Kaprizov. And... There's a lot of things that go into that. When to take them, uh, the Russian factor. Um, you knew you weren't going to get them for a little bit of time. Can you just take us through that process and when you identified them? And, and one GM told me once that the scariest thing about a pick like that is you never know where anybody else has them on their draft card. So you're sitting here, you've got a player you really believe in, you know you're going to get them somewhere late. 
but the worst thing is does someone step up and steal them from you? Can you take us through that process and deciding when to pick them and how you came to picking them? Yeah, it, it's a great story. Well, you know, first of all, uh, Brent Flair ran our draft and and Brent really liked Kaprizov. You know, there was some some concern about the Russian factor, some concern about the size and the skating combination. But we had a second round grade on him. And that year we took Eric Sinek in the first round and we got to the second round. I believe we were picking 50. And uh, there was a player, Jordan Greenway, that was still available. Big, strong North American winger. And we actually thought Greenway would go late first or early second. So when he slid to us at 50, uh, we took him. But if Greenway was gone, we were probably taking Kaprizov in the, in the second round, believe it or not. Mm. That shows you how smart we are. I mean, Greenway's a wonderful player in the NHL, but Kaprizov should have been a first-round pick, you know, obviously a high first-round pick. So we don't take him in the second. We didn't have a third that year. I believe we had traded that for Devin Dubnik. We get to the fourth round, and this is where some of those debates that Jeff was alluding to earlier, and you get the the position. And one of the guys that we also had talked about in the second was uh, Vladar, Mm. the goaltender I believe Boston drafted, and he went in the second and the next goalie we had on our list was a Czech goalie named Stechka, who actually was a backup to Vladar in a few uh, tournaments. And he was still there in the fourth, and we really needed a goalie, and we had a couple scouts that said, we got to take a goalie. So now we take this player in the fourth. Even though Kaprizov is by far and away the highest skater on our list, we took a goalie. We don't have a fifth-round pick, and uh, we talked to a team, the Bruins, that had had a lot of picks in that draft, and we traded a future fifth to get the fifth, and and uh, Kaprizov is still there. So uh, I think it's a story where clearly Brent was correct. He had a high grade on him, and, and he believed in him, and he liked him, and yet we were incredibly lucky. Let's not kid ourselves. We, we went by him uh, in the second. Uh, we went by him in the fourth, and then we had to scramble to, to get a pick to get him in the fifth. But we did, and other teams didn't. So, you know, it's it's it was a great break for the for the Minnesota Wild. And but there's an example where you're both, I guess, good and lucky. But to be honest, a player like that should not be going in the fifth round. You know, it's funny you say that because that's what the Patriots always say about Tom Brady. Not that we get credit for taking him in the sixth round or whatever it was, but why didn't we take him <laughs> earlier? Like I've always, I, I love the way they think, but. I was curious, was there anyone, Chuck, that you thought was going to, that you knew liked him, that was going to take him? Were you worried about any particular team? There wasn't, but I, I do remember the conversation after we took Stashka in the fourth round. I remember turning to Brent, and, and ultimately it was my decision, but I, you know, I went with the guys, and uh, I didn't know these players at that point. You know, I said, you know, we're not going to get Kaprizov now. So after that, it's every pick. You're sitting there. Did he go? No, he didn't go. You know, we're trying to get an extra pick. We're trying to get a fifth-round pick, and it worked out. But you, you just assume at some point the player was so skilled, uh, despite the, the size and speed, despite the, the Russian factor, that somebody would take him. And uh, obviously it was a different time, and now it's swung back, and you're seeing many more Russian players being drafted. But, again, we, we were very fortunate. Is it scary drafting goaltenders? <laughs> who doesn't unless you're a former goalie who wouldn't we always laugh I mean the last few years what what we've done when I was in with Philadelphia is we literally let our two goaltending coaches uh, just go through all the video and form their own conclusions and they can talk to the amateur scouts a little bit to get some impressions and and get some anecdotal information but it's just extremely difficult position to understand so I, I find it terrifying, um, and I, I don't know that we've been particularly good or particularly bad with the teams that, that uh, I've been with in terms of drafting goaltenders, but I do know that, and I, and I believe this came from either Dean Lombardi or Doug Wilson, call it the old San Jose model, but the theory of, of drafting one goalie every year, whether it's a third round, fourth round, fifth round, Maybe there's a, a guy you like early in the first or second, but at a minimum, as history has shown, there's a lot of goaltenders coming out of the third, fourth, and fifth round and trying to take a guy most years and make sure you have several in the pipeline and you hope one or two make it. So that's kind of been the approach we've lived by, but it, it's I find it very difficult to uh, profess to be an expert on goaltending, and, and you really have to allow, in my opinion, your goaltending coaches to make that decision.
Okay, so we've talked a lot about, you know, just drafting players and the whirlwind around it. Now let's add the other variable. Your phone rings and someone calls you and says, another GM says, I need this pick or how do you feel about this? How much of this stuff is done in advance of the draft and how often do we get the draft day movie scene of your phone rings and someone throws you a wild idea right in the middle of it. <laughs> I got a couple couple stories there. You know, it's a little bit of a mixed bag. In the first round, again, you don't see a lot of teams trading back in the top 10. Right. But, you know, the mid first round, the late first round, if you're sitting in that area, you will have conversations with teams leading up to the draft. I remember the 2019 draft was my first one in Philadelphia. We were picking 11 and I remember John Chaika with Arizona had, had spoke to me a couple times prior to the draft and, and the morning of the draft. Uh, he was at 14 saying that mm-hmm. if a certain player was at 11, they'd have interest in moving up. And would you consider, you know, 11 for 14 type of swap? And, of course, at that time, you can't commit to it. But, you know, I said, sure, the idea is interesting depending on who's who's on the board. And, and he said, what would the cost be? I said, it would cost your second-round pick. So you have those conversations so when you're on the clock, you have an idea. Uh, but I, I do remember one year, I think it was 2014, I was in Minnesota and I got a call from Tim Murray. And uh, we were picking, I'm not even sure the exact number, maybe 18. It's a year that we drafted Alex Tuck in Minnesota. And Tim Murray offered me three second round picks for 18. Hmm. Out of the blue, we, we had never discussed it before. So you're on the clock. You got about four or five minutes to make your decision. We knew we wanted to take Tuck. And now all of a sudden, someone throws three second-round picks at you. Mm -hmm. You're trying to figure out what's the value of those three picks. Where are they? What does our list look like? And uh, I just said to Tim, look, I'm not smart enough to figure that out right now. We really like Tuck. And and that's the player they wanted, a Western New York player. So we we passed on it, and and to this day he's still angry. I didn't do the deal. He said, "How can you not? How how did you not do the deal? I offered you three second round picks. I was so stupid." I said, "I was too stupid to understand it, Tim." But but you in the first round you often see teams calling. You let teams know we're willing to we'll consider moving up or we'll consider moving back. You call the teams around you just to just to get a feel for the lay of the land. But as the draft moves on, the second, third, fourth round, you get a lot of calls. Teams have a player that's on their list that they can't believe is still there and they're trying to trade up to get them. The scouts are harassing them. This guy's still there. He's 24th on our list or pick number 45, give them a future, you know, whatever. And, and so there's a lot of those type of calls and, and uh, you're always trying to shuffle. You're talking to your analytics guy, you're talking to your head scout and you're trying to figure out the value of each move, whether you're moving up or down. And those are hard to script because those, those happen more on the fly, but the first round, certainly you're, you're a little bit more prepared. Okay, so that's an interesting story. So the uh, the draft pick, the uh, the draft rather in uh, in question there is a 2014 draft. That was the draft that took place in Philadelphia, uh, the Aaron Ekblad draft. Actually, you can call it the uh, the 2023 Stanley Cup Final draft because Ekblad's involved, uh, Sam Reinhardt is involved, and Sam Bennett, three of the top four picks, were involved in that Stanley Cup Final. So the uh, 18 in exchange for three second round uh, second round picks from uh, Tim Murray. So Tim Murray, then general manager of the Buffalo Sabres, went up and drafted Sam Reinhart. Uh, and it's a wonderful story. He just went up there and said, Buffalo Sabres select Sam Reinhart and walked off the stage. No BS, no thank you, Philadelphia, for hosting the draft. No congratulations to the Stanley Cup champions or a nod at someone having the, the draft party back home in Buffalo. Nope, Tim Murray, all business, all business, just Buffalo Sabres select. I don't even think he said the junior team that he was from. Like, I don't even think that he said Kootenai. Yeah, he just said Buffalo Sabres select Sam Reinhardt. And that was it, really economical. Uh, quick side story to that. The next season, the top prospects game was in Niagara at the Meridian Center. And this was the Conor McDavid year. And I went up to Tim and I said, listen, on behalf of uh, all of us in media, we had a real chuckle. We all really enjoyed it uh, when you went up there. And there was, like, no extra flowery language. It was just all business. Uh, Buffalo Sabres select Sam Reinhardt. And he laughed and he said, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm trying to break the record or set the record for fewest words said on the stage at the draft. And he said, what I want to actually do this year at the draft, and this would have been the Buffalo Sabres taking Jack Eichel, 
Um, he said, what I want to do this year at the draft is not say anything. I said, what? He goes, no, I just want to walk up onto the stage. I want to point at who I want and then walk off the stage. And I said, and say nothing. He goes, no, I just want to walk up point and walk off the stage but they won't let me they want to say the buffalo sabers they want me to say the name and all that i just want to point at the guy that i wanted but as a as a as a note that 2014 draft so minnesota takes alex tuck at uh, at 18th overall alex tuck is you know of course from uh well he plays with the buffalo sabers now but he's from syracuse new york he's uh, the local guy loves it in buffalo etc um, Tim Murray, as I'm told, you know, wanted Alex Tuck all season long. And then when it became obvious that Minnesota was going to grab him, he made the trade offer. Uh, Chuck Fletcher of Minnesota said, no, we're not in a point right now to evaluate what three second round draft picks are going to mean for us. We're going to go ahead and we're going to make the pick. Do you know who the three second rounders turned out to be? I will give them to you in reverse order because Buffalo had three picks uh, in that second round. Uh, the first pick, which is the third second round pick, uh, 49th overall, Vaslav Karabachek from Gatineau. Never played a game in the NHL. The other was a really interesting name. This was 44th overall. Someone who at various points leading up into his draft year was considered, I think by some at that point, like a top five pick. And that's Eric Cornell uh, from the Peterborough Peets, a uh, forward, uh, right winger, I believe, never played a game in the National Hockey League. But the other one who was the, uh, was the first overall pick in the second round, pick number 31, is someone who's played 275 games in the NHL and continues to play. That was Brendan Lemieux. Now, Minnesota, I'm sure, would have drafted different players, but that's who Buffalo selected with their three second-round picks to complete that little story between Tim Murray and Chuck Fletcher, the trade proposal that went nowhere on the draft floor of the Philadelphia draft, the Aaron Ekblad draft. Um, you can hear the whole interview, by the way, at our most recent 32 Thoughts podcast. Uh, check it out. It goes like that, that. Like Chuck gave us like an hour. Some really good stuff in there. Some intriguing stories and some good analysis and what it's like to be a general manager in and around the draft and specifically on first round draft day. So uh, look for that uh, wherever you get your podcasts. I uh, will take a break. More of the Merrick Show here in moments. Matty Marchese is aboard. Wrap up what, uh, what's been a pretty eventful day uh, around hockey, not just the NHL, but around hockey. Recap it all for you next. Merrick Show continues across the Sportsnet Radio Network, simulcast on Sportsnet 360. Hello if you're watching in Sportsnet Now. Big guests and bigger opinions on everything happening in Leafsland. Real Kipper and Born. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Welcome back to the program. One more segment here uh, and one more show this week. That is uh, tomorrow. Then Maddie handles it next week. Speaking of Maddie, he's aboard again. How are you, Maddie? I'm good. Aside from dealing with IT issues, I'm good. What's the matter? Technology <laughs> makes our lives easier. Come on. What's yeah. going on with you? Yeah, I went to look at my phone and my email <laughs> was completely deleted yeah. off my phone. I can't log into the app that we oh, need to heaven. access to download. Like, oh, it's just... It just happened. I have no idea no, how. This is, this is heaven. <laughs> this is heaven. Trust me. My, my heaven is like my phone has been totally zapped. It's it's worthless. I can't use it. And that means I can like, you know, go for a walk. Don't have to be married to my phone. Uh, oh, yeah. Tr trust me. One day I'll be the enemy of technology. Like one day when it's all said and done for me. And who knows? That might be this summer. I am just going to be a rumor, dude. I am just going to be such a rumor. No one's going to be able to get in touch with me. I'm going to be so far off the grid guy. That's going to be me all day long. The off the grid guy. How about you? Uh, I'm not. I would like to be. I would like Unplugged. to be off the grid in like Italy. That's where I'd like to be <laughs> off the grid. That's fine. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Do it wherever you want. But like that kind of is... I know it's just like whenever, like, you know, when you like leave your phone, even if you like leave your phone in the car for a second and you like walk into a store or something and you're coming back in like two minutes, like we're at the place <laughs> now where it just feels like you I've feel left naked. a limb <laughs> yeah. in the car, you know, I've, ooh, I, like I left my arm on the windowsill at home. Ooh, I wonder why I feel so awkward. Oh, anyway, my phone's on in my pocket. Do I have pants on? 
Julie make a Delaware pants. So bad. All right, yeah, what's going on? Great. What do you got for us here to wrap up the show? So I was thinking about the conversation that you had with Elliot today where you talk about when, when somebody gets inducted into the Hall of Fame, who does it open up the door for? Yeah. And when I saw both yeah. Mike Vernon and Tom Barrasso, the first name that came to my mind was Chris Osgood. Hmm. Yes, there are many that have made. I mean, I, I find it interesting that it opens the door for Kelly Rudy as well. I, I love that conversation because it will allow me to torture Kevin Bieksa. Because when you look at the <laughs> Hockey Night panel, like Jennifer Botterill is going in. I would love it if Kelly Rudy went in just to torture Juice. Just to torture Kevin. <laughs> just surrounded by Hall of Famers everywhere he looks. Yeah, that would be good. Yeah. Um, okay, the, the other thing was I saw this, and again, this is, you know, we talk about the dog days. I saw this tweeted from the Blackhawks account a couple so, days ago, and we didn't get to it because we didn't have time. But I was okay. they, they okay. asked what your first Blackhawks jersey was or who your first Blackhawks jersey was. My question to you is, who was your first yep. hockey jersey? Oh, wow. Well, first of all, the first Blackhawks player, like honestly, the first Blackhawks player that I really had an affinity for would have been Keith Magnuson, the late Keith Magnuson. Don't forget, like I grew up watching, you know, hockey in the, in the mid 70s and Magnuson, God bless him. God bless him. Um, he took on everybody. Like, and this was like the, the bully days of the NHL and, and Keith Magnuson, whenever they would come to the old Chicago Stadium. Um, he would take them on. Didn't matter. Dave Schultz, Terry O'Reilly, Clark Gillies, all of them. He was like the uh, the only man standing for the Chicago Blackhawks. Um, my first hockey jersey was probably a nameless Maple Leafs jersey that my parents bought for me one Christmas. Uh, I was a big my, – my two favorites on that Maple Leafs team were Mike Palmatier and Borea Salming. So it was probably one of those two. But then I remember, like, there was, uh, geez, probably in the in the 80s, I would have had, I don't know, like I had a Cam Neely Boston jersey. I had a couple of Red Wings uh, jerseys. But probably Maple Leafs, either Salming or Palmatier would have been mm, my two. Okay. What about you? So the first jersey I got, which I still to this day uh, – my mother's not happy because I lost it at school um, was a Jersey they got for me when I was two and it was a leaf Jersey and it was a little too big. I always said it was Sylvain Lefebvre's Jersey, but it had my name on the back. It said Matthew on the back. Um, <laughs> and then I got another one when I was eight with Matthew on the back, which is so ridiculous that they put my first name on it. But anyway, the first player yeah. that I got their Jersey was when Owen Nolan got traded to the Leafs and I went out and bought the Owen Nolan third jersey, the Leafs with the white oh, and the wow. blue shoulders with the old maple leaf on the front. I still have it to this day. It's a little tight, um, but I can still kind of squeeze into it. <laughs> but yeah, that was the first yeah. one that I that I got with, with a player's name on it. And then, and you'll love this one. And then, because I know okay. you know, Ch I know you know Cliff Fletcher and we just had Chuck Fletcher on the show uh, with the interview. Yeah, so, my parents said, what do you want for Christmas? And I said, I wanted a Leafs jersey. They said, okay, what players would you like? I said, because with the thought process that this guy's going to be around for a long time, was Alexander Steen. And I really liked him as a player. And then wow. Cliff Fletcher went and traded him for Lee Stempniak. Um, yes, because they wanted a right-hand shot on the power play. <laughs> I remember, remember that one. That one specifically. Oh. We need a right hand shot on the power play. Lee Stempniak, let's go. Um, yeah, I remember that well. Um, hey, listen, this is this is probably for for a different show. Like your 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 first jersey, your first name, nah, first name plate, and first number. Um, I don't know that I ever. Even it's weird because I was such a kid at the WHA. I don't know. I mean, I own plenty of WHA t-shirts, but I don't think I own any or have ever owned any WHA jerseys. Oh, that would be great. I would love a Toros jersey. I remember once, 
and I couldn't justify it to my to my well I couldn't justify it to myself and by that I mean I couldn't justify it to my wife this was on this is when I was like uh such an eBay loser for hockey stuff like you know I used to bid on old Jofa helmets all the time right I got like this yep. I don't know what I'm gonna do with all these things but I got tons of like old Jofas that I used to just this is when I was single and had like too much money and like I had didn't have, you know, a mortgage or kids or anything like that. So I spent my money on Jofa helmets on eBay. I remember Jesus is when my then girlfriend, now wife and I just first started dating and we got our first house together. And I remember there was this, <laughs> you'll love this. It was a Toronto Toros Zamboni driver cardigan. Oh my so God. Of course. Tor- yeah. Oh man. Trust me. It was Oh, it was beautiful. It was white with the Toros logo. Uh, it wasn't in pristine condition, but I like on eBay, I, Maddie, I think it was like $600. And I'm oh like, first of all, where am I going to wear this thing? I'm probably going to put it <laughs> behind glass. And then am I really going to pay $600 for a Toronto Toros <laughs> Zamboni driver cardigan? I'm sure these are still, if you can have a look at them all, all over the internet, some, but have a peek at it. At, uh, I just do a, a Google Images search on Toronto Toros Zamboni driver cardigan sweaters. Like, seriously, dude. Uh, I'm going to do that. Beautiful. So, so I'm glad you brought but that up, actually. No way I could justify it. I'm glad you brought that up because uh, our pal General Soreness tweeted us yesterday and they were talking about yeah. people that should be in the Hall of Fame. And Frank Zamboni mm. was a name that's that people said should be inducted into the Hall of Fame. I'm a big listen. I'm a big fan of that. I'm a big fan of people that have um, have contributed, whether it's, you know, the ice resurfacer, uh, as we all call it, like n- nobody calls them ice resurfacers they are called Zambonis. But that's like calling tissue paper Kleenex or calling inline skates rollerblades. Like it's just become synonymous. Um, but I'm a big fan of that. Absolutely. And anyone who's had those types of innovations, whether it's equipment or things to do with the ice or the nets or anything like that, like bring it on. I am also Team Woodley on this one. I think goalie coaches are a big one just because it is such a specific position and how much it has changed and improved the game in the last i don't know 30 years uh, i think goalie coaches should go in as well um and i'm happy now that we can have the conversation about kelly rudy let's go um thanks jimmy murphy from boston hockey now for uh, stopping by the program today speaking of the hall of fame carolyn willette for stopping by from the uh, 2023 class and elliot friedman who called in from the bog the board of governors in New York City. Thanks to Jen Rolnick for making it look good, Lance Kennedy for making it sound good, and Matt Marchese for one day taking my job. Show returns tomorrow, Friday edition of the Merrick Show across the Sportsnet Radio Network, Sportsnet 360, and Sportsnet Now. Talk to you in 22 hours.